recorded live. Hello again, everybody. This is Pastor Visser from the heart of the Dirty South, that is Brooks, Georgia, in the outskirts of Atlanta. Dear friends, we've been having nothing but problems trying to access the talk shoe server this evening. As you know, our show normally begins at 9.15, and apparently we're having extreme difficulties. My computer didn't work, my wife's laptop. But nonetheless, I can barely hear through this phone because there's apparently a problem at TalkShoe itself. So, for the listeners that are in the chat room already, please go ahead and let me know if you're able to hear me, because everything's acting extremely strange. Not even working. Hello again, everybody. This is Pastor Visser from the heart of the Dirty South. Once again, it looks like we may, or at least TalkShoe may have, their little problems ironed out, at least for the moment. If there are any problems, dear friends, please go ahead and post in the chat room if the audio drops or what have you. I noticed from last night's audio sermon there were two or about three different parts in that hour-and-a-half broadcast where it did drop out, the audio drops. That's apparently a... uh, casualty of being on the talk shoe radio network like always dear kinsfolk this particular covenant people's radio broadcast is very little plugged outside of to a few people and a graphic in our forum at the covenant people's forums which is accessible on the world wide web at covenantpeoplesministry.org so needless to say we can go ahead and settle into this and this final study into the Gospel of Thomas. Indeed, this will be the seventh part, and I believe we should be able to cover it in the next hour and a half, which is good, because as I've stated in the previous broadcast, this Gospel of Thomas series, dealing with this Gnostic text, has been extremely strange. It's been plagued with all sorts of problems, all sorts of uh, atrocities that have come and gone over the last year and a half, and needless to say, tonight is no different. But... Tonight is June 26th of the year 2012. It's approximately 9.20 p.m., and we will be covering the Gospel of Thomas, completing it. But before getting to that, I would like to read to you several quotes all pertaining to the Gospel of Thomas from other theologians who have dealt with this exact text and basically what they had to say about it. There's numerous things that should be pointed out, and you've heard me say them before, about this Gospel of Thomas. And perhaps the most chauvinist statement of all is the one that it completes on, and we'll get to that much later, if that is to be seen as a bad thing. But nonetheless, Robert Robert W. Funk, in his Jesus Seminar and in his book, The Five Gospels, A Search for the Authentic 
words of Jesus Christ, has this to say about the Gospel of Thomas. He says this, quote, The Gospel of Thomas has proved to be a gold mine of comparative material and new information. Thomas has 47 parallels to the Gospel of Mark, 40 parallels to Q, 17 to Matthew, 4 to Luke, and 5 to John. These numbers include sayings that have been counted twice. About 65 sayings, or parts of sayings, are unique to Thomas. Complex sayings in Thomas, as in the other Gospels, are often made up of more than one saying. So that total number of individual items in Thomas exceeds 114. These materials, which many scholars take to represent a tradition quite independent of the other Gospels, provide what scientists call a control group for the analysis of sayings and parables that appear in other Gospels. End quote. And so we see here that the author, Robert Funk, is pointing out what I have already taught to you. That is, that there are numerous parallels and very few, if any, contradictions in this Gnostic text. Most likely that is because it has been tampered with and perverted the least of all the Gospels. And we will find that in the second quote that I'm about to read to you, which deals with the same exact topic. This quote is from the author Ron Cameron, and his book is called The Other Gospels, Non-Canonal Gospel Texts. He says this, quote, it is probable that many of the sayings in the Gospel of Thomas, which are not preserved elsewhere, also derive from early traditions of sayings of Jesus. This document is, therefore, an important source of as well as witness to Jesus' sayings. Since the Gospel of Thomas is independent of the writings of the New Testament, its date of composition is not contingent upon these or any other written documents we now possess. Its earliest possible date of composition would be in the middle of the first century when the other sayings collections first began to be compiled. And so, dear kinsfolk, as I've pointed out time and time again, unfortunately the Masoretic text and what we hold and possess in the form of the King James Bible has been continually transliterated, translated, edited, and added to and taken away. But not so with the Gospel of Thomas. We must remember that this Gospel of Thomas was considered hidden, at least hidden from the mainstream, up until the year 1945, when it was so-called discovered. But being discovered, we should be able to notice that even though this is new, again, it's almost identical and verbatim to what Jesus Christ says in our Gospels. There are a few variations, but what should be pointed out is that it has been perverted the least of all of our Gospels. Now here's a quote from Stephen J. Patterson, who wrote the Gospel of Thomas and Jesus, which is a commentary on this very book. He says this, quote, The Gospel of Thomas is the product of tradition. Of this, one may be sure. Put in the most general terms, it belongs to the same period of Christian writing that produced the canonical Gospels. Of this, too, one may be confident. As such, it stands as a relatively new and independent witness to the complex and obscure period of Christian origins. Whatever we may learn about the persons who used and championed it, about their relationship to the other early Christian groups, and about their theology, will be of obvious value in the continuing endeavor to understand the elusive reality of Christian beginnings. And so here it is, Stephen Patterson saying much what I taught last night. That is, that even if 
there are variations in this gospel. We as Christian identists should not be shocked, because there are variations in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Essentially, each one of these authors wrote their vision and or their take on the life of Jesus Christ according to their own perception. And therefore, we can see several different witnesses for the crucifixion of Christ. And thank Jesus that it is that way. Could you imagine four Gospels that were all identical? And so, that teaching in Scripture is that it is in the glory of God to conceal a matter, but the duty of saints to seek it out. And so, here a little, there a little, line upon line, precept upon precept. Through this all, and through studying this, we should be able to strengthen our own walk with Jesus Christ. And so, dear kinfolk, I have one more quote before completing this Gospel of Thomas in this seventh part. And this quote is from Harold Bloom in his A Reading of the Gospel of Thomas, which is copyright 1960. Nothing meditates the self for the Jesus of the Gospel of Thomas. Everything we seek is already in our presence and not outside ourself. What is most remarkable in these sayings is the repeated insistence that everything is already open to you. You need to knock and enter. What is best and oldest in you will respond fully to what you allow yourself to see. And so he says very much what I have been teaching. That is, that in the Gospel of Thomas, the Jesus Christ that is showcased is one who tells you the kingdom of heaven is all around you. For example, last night where he says, split a piece of wood, I am there. Lift a rock, I am there. Moreover, he will not be found in houses built with hands. And so, you will see that tonight's study in the Gospel of Thomas will be exactly the same. In fact, it ends on the same exact note. So, without further ado, let's go ahead and complete the Gospel of Thomas. Last night, we left off in saying 95, where Jesus said, If you have some money, don't lend it out at interest, but give it to someone who will not return it to you. The next verse says this. Jesus said, The kingdom of the Father is like a woman who took a little leaven and concealed it in dough. She made large loaves of bread. He who has ears, let him hear. And so just that statement alone, he who has ears, let him hear, is contingent upon the perception of the listener and or reader. I say that because we're going to be coming up on several of these sayings and or parables that many of the easy believists in Judeo-Christianity come along and say this is the reason why we must be subject to all the laws of man. This is the reason why we must do what man says over God. But that's simply not the case. So we should notice that unlike our own Gospels, that is Matthew chapter 13, verse 33, and Luke chapter 13, verses 20 through 22, here in the Gospel of Thomas, Jesus Christ says the kingdom of the Father is like a woman who took a little leaven and concealed it in dough. And most people will look at the aspect of leaven and attribute that to the kingdom of heaven, and indeed it can be seen as such. For example, if we teach the truth in season and out of season, then others will be touched by that truth, at least those that Jesus Christ has led into that truth, and they in turn will teach others. And then, therefore, we have a pyramid effect, and we see that our nations and our governments and our local communities are blessed because they're Christian, they're moralistic. But if we do not, then we fall into chaos. But the thing that should be pointed out is more important than leaven or something that expands like we like to think the kingdom of heaven is, is focusing on the woman. That is, the woman who took a little leaven and concealed it in dough. What is that, dear kinsfolk? Works. 
And once again, we see that we must have faith that leads us to action. We cannot sit around in complacency and say, I believe in Jesus Christ. Let's let God sort out all the chips. If you want to know the kingdom of heaven, then first and foremost, you must work towards knowing that. Throughout this entire Gospel of Thomas, it is Jesus Christ who says, seek, not telling you what to seek, because it's up to you to know what you should seek for. Those of the world will seek money. Those of the Spirit will seek Yahweh's face. So she makes large loaves of bread with leaven. And this is what the kingdom of heaven could be attributed to as well. Next verse. That is 97. Jesus said, The kingdom of the Father is like a woman who is carrying a jar full of grain. As she walked along, a handle of her jar broke off and grain trickled out. But she didn't notice. When she arrived in her house, she put the jar down and found it empty. And so, dear kinsfolk, before even going on, I'm going to say to you right now that I am not going to give you my interpretation on this said verse, because this particular verse is meant to be exactly what it is, dumbfounding and confusion, and contingent upon the listener. So once again, listen. Jesus said, the kingdom of the Father is like a woman who is carrying a jar full of grain. As she walked along, a handle of her jar broke off and grain trickled out, but she didn't notice. When she arrived at her house, she put a jar down and found it empty. Now that, in and of itself, dear friends, is how it would have sounded to you or I had we lived when Jesus Christ walked the face of this earth. For indeed, as I've taught, precept must be upon precept. There's a little here and there's a little there. But we, in this year, 2012, 2,000 years after these books have been written, have the fortune of eons and eras of study, Christian scholarship and theology. For example, people who can come along and say, well, care equals children of the wicked one. Field equals world. But, dear friends, this Gospel of Thomas has only been in existence, or at least with us, in discovery for an excess of 70 years. And so there's not that much study pertaining to this Gnostic text, and therefore there is no true answer that can be given to this parable. The reason for that is this parable, like many of Jesus's, are to get you to decide and take stock within yourself of what your priorities are, what is important. Next verse, 98. Jesus said, the kingdom of the Father is like a man who intended to kill a powerful man. He drew out his sword in his own house and stabbed it into the wall to test his strength. Then he killed the powerful man. And so out there within mainstream Christianity and modern churchianity, I should say, there is this belief that we as Christians are to allow the world to use us as its stepman and footstool, that we're supposed to be second-class citizens somehow and turn the other cheek when people come and punch us in one side. But these are not the teachings of Scripture. Indeed, we are to be meek, but it was also Jesus Christ who taught, If any man has no sword, let him sell all he has and get one. So, it should be no confusion, dear kinsfolk. At the time Jesus Christ walked, it was identical to the time we live in now. Dangerous for the true saints, disciples and followers who were subject to robbery, highway robbery, and or oppression from the government of the time. That is Sanhedrin. So the kingdom of the Father is like a man who intended to kill a powerful man. 
A powerful man, in essence, could be seen as somebody who's powerful within the ways of the world. Somebody who wants to come along and screw his employees out of their money, for example. And the kingdom of, fa- kingdom of the Father, which is the same thing as saying the kingdom of heaven, is identical to that. What? A man who intends to kill a powerful man. But what does he do first? Action. Once again, the kingdom of heaven is not attributed necessarily to this man who intended to kill a taskmaster. Rather, the kingdom of heaven is attributed to a man who has faith that leads to action. And so, indeed, this powerful man was taken out, killed, a.k.a. by God. Next verse, 99. His disciples told him, Your brothers and your mother are standing outside. He, that is Yahshua Messiah, responded, These here who do the will of my Father are my brothers and my mother. These are the ones who will enter the kingdom of my Father. And so there, three times in the Gospel of Thomas, Jesus Christ tells us what the kingdom of his Father is like. He doesn't say it's in some place out in space floating off. He doesn't say that's where you go if you generally live a good life. What he says is it's here. And these metaphors and allegories that he gives are, are for you, as a Christian, to attribute them to your own life. Where is your standing? He who is most spiritual will see the spiritual aspect in these teachings. He who is most secular will only see the words that are written, but never make any sense of it. Straightforwardly, we covered last night, Jesus Christ, not only in this Gospel of Thomas, but also other places within our canonized Gospel, says, Whosoever does not hate mother, father, son, brother, sister, mothers-in-laws, and etc., is not worthy to follow Jesus Christ. And so here we see technically the same sentiment. When the disciples ran up to Jesus Christ, they told him, they said, You know what? Your brothers and your mother Mary are standing right outside. And Jesus made an important statement. He says, first and foremost, These here who do the will of my Father are my brothers and my mother. So, in essence, what we could say is God's chosen people are those who do the will. What is the will of God? It's forever transcribed within his law. And moreover, we should notice that Jesus placed more importance on his heavenly father more than his earthly mother. Who was Joseph? The Judean. The carpenter. Joseph was not the physical father of Jesus Christ. All throughout Scripture, Jesus Christ is considered the Son of God. And if Jesus Christ is the Son of God, for us to come along and say, well, he's a Jew, he's a Judean, he's the Son of Joseph, is no different than those detractors that were attacking Jesus Christ as he walked. So it's a matter of perception, is it not? Had Jesus said, well, Mary and Joseph are my parents, he would have been a worldly person. But rather what he pointed out was that Mary, who was more attributed to his flesh, who shared the same exact blood as Yahshua Messiah, was no more his mother, brother, sister, etc., than those who do the will of God. What can we take away from this, dear friends? We could take away the aspect that the only true way to please God, the only true way to be considered a man, woman, or child of God, is to do his will. That's not to sit, read, and sit and say, well, you know what, I believe in these words. That is actually doing the word, as Scripture says. 
What does it avail you if you sit time and time again reading the Word of God, but you don't exercise its morality? This is what the scriptures lawyer, the scripture lawyers did that Jesus Christ condemned. This is what the Pharisee, the modern Pharisee, who exists within Christian identity today, is still doing. What they like to do is come along and tell you, uh, well, you know, the Word of God says this. They'll fight, they'll argue, they'll end fight, they'll cause all sorts of divisions, but they themselves are hypocrites. They don't follow the Word of God. Rather, they love having division. So, dear friends, do the Word, do the will of God, and do exactly what He says. Why? Because in only doing that can we be considered a friend of Christ. Next verse, and very important, pay close attention because this is what it's leading up to. Verse 11, they who, the disciples, showed Jesus, a, showed Jesus a gold coin and said, Caesar's agents demand that we pay his taxes. He replied, give to Caesar what is Caesar's, give to God what is God's, and give me what is mine. Once again, perception. Do you, dear kinsfolk, believe that if man comes along, takes God's gold, presses it flat, stamps his own face on it, and says, hell, that's mine, that it is? Or do you believe the word of God that says the earth and the wholeness, the fullness, everything belongs to Yahweh God? What a perfect answer, dear kinsfolk. He didn't come along and say don't pay taxes, because in doing so he would have been crucified before the time. But what he does say is give to Caesar's what you think is Caesar's. What's your perception? Do you want to give a portion to man, or do you want to give all to God? That's really what it boils down to. But unlike our Gospels, dear friends, we should notice that Jesus adds something here. He says, give to Caesar what Caesar's, give to God what is God's, and give me what is mine. And so, as it's leading up to it, and as Jesus Christ straightforwardly teaches in our regular King James Bible, he says, no man can come unto the Father except by me. He also says, I and the Father are one. And so, what do you render to Caesar? Scripture, all of Scripture straightforwardly says we ought to obey God rather than man. Moreover, more specifically, it says we're only to give homage and respect and do benevolence, if you will, to a government of man if and only if it aligns with the law of God. So if they come along and they say, you know what, we're going to go ahead and bastardize God's concept of marriage by allowing homosexual queers to go ahead and get married, the Judeo-Christian will go along with it. He'll say, well, Pat Robertson's saying it's okay, it must be all right, never understanding there is nothing new under the sun, and that that abomination will always be. But these are they who render unto Caesar what Caesar's. Hey, if Billy Graham says it, then it must be doctrine, right? No. Everything belongs to God. And if we don't have that mindset, dear friends, we are squandering a portion of our birthright. Continuing on in verse 11, verse, excuse me, continuing on in verse 100, 100a says this, Jesus continues. Jesus said, anyone who doesn't hate his father and his mother, as I do, cannot be a disciple of mine. And anyone who doesn't love his father and mother, as I do, cannot be a disciple of mine. My mother has dot, 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 but true, she gave me life. And so here, in the saying 100, again we see a missing transcript and a gap here. But we see that he ends it by saying, 
true, it is true, and it is of a truity, that Mary birthed Jesus Christ. So what Jesus Christ is saying here in verse 101, it's not necessarily the aspect that we need to go out and have hatred, variance, and enmity with our family members. But more importantly, that we need to love our father and mother as he did. Jesus didn't rebuke Mary. He made a straightforward point. That those who do the will of God, the law of God, that love Yahweh in and of itself, are more kin to him than by birth. Once again, where's your perception, dear friends? Do you believe that man who lives down the road is your father? Or do you believe that Yahweh is? If you believe Yahweh is, you won't call any man father. You'll call your dad, dad. And you'll call him father. It's really that simple. But for the flesh man, for the modern man, they dwell within the flesh. That's all they know. So if you were to go up to him on the street and say, hey, who's your mom? Who's your dad? They'd say Jack Smith. They'd say Jackie, uh, whoever. They would make something up, but it would always pertain and lead back to the flesh. Give to Caesars what Caesars. But guess what, friends? Caesar owns nothing. And so if you want to rock around and take boast in your heritage, your race, and so forth, that means very little in the face of this statement that those who want to be a disciple of Jesus Christ must love him more than any other fleshly person down here on earth. Next verse. That is verse 102 in the Gospel of Thomas. Jesus said, Woe to the Pharisees, like a dog dozing in a food trough for cattle. They neither eat, nor do they let the cattle eat. So I pointed out last night, dear friends, that the famine in the end times is not for food, but for the word of God. So when it comes along and Jesus Christ says, woe unto them who give suck in those days, it's essentially a rebuke against those who are on the milk of the word when the time is short. Dear friends, there is simply no excuse to be biblically ignorant in this day and age. As I pointed out, we have these texts. We're able to go and get the Gospel of Thomas at a bookstore, if you will. We're able to come along and download them off the Internet. These are things that Christians of a mere 200 years ago, or 20 years ago, if you will, would have killed to have access to. Moreover, I might add, dear friends, consider what we have today. The average person, at least in America, living even in an apartment or a small two-bedroom house, lives better than King James did in the year 1611 when his Bible was translated. We have access to the media. We have access to things like the Talk Show Radio Network, and we have access to make our own web pages. A mere 20 years ago, that would have been unheard of. So I say unto you, dear friends, do not neglect that gift. The time is short. Why? Knowledge is increasing. This is leading up to the end times. And as such, knowledge will increase. Knowledge in the Word of God. And in evil, if you want to really get down to it. But, nonetheless. The Pharisees, who are hypocrites. Pharisees are considered stage players. These are those who go along and they pretend outwardly to be Christian. They say, yeah, I love Jesus Christ, and then they go and eat pork. Or they're the ones who say, hey, you know what, I follow the law of God. And then they go out and gossip. Because what they do is they want the world to see them as something they're not. But what more do Pharisees do? Pay close attention. Like a dog dozing in a food trough for cattle. They don't eat, nor do they let the cattle eat. 
So in essence, what it is, is the Pharisees, those hypocrites, don't teach. They don't give you the meat of the word. They never will be able to. Why? Because they themselves aren't on the meat. They're on the milk themselves. They themselves don't eat. And therefore, the goyim, a.k.a. cattle, will not be able to eat either. We should also notice from this verse that Jesus Christ considered the Pharisees to be like a dog. And as I've taught before in Beware of Dogs and Pearls Before Swine, we must take these commandments extremely serious. Jesus Christ didn't come along and say, well, you're a Pharisee. Let me give you respect the way that man does down here when they see someone like Billy Graham. Rather, they would rebuke him time and time again. Woe unto you, Pharisees, for you appear as white on the outside like a sepulcher, but inside you're full of dead man's bones. Woe unto you, Pharisees, for you take away the keys of life and don't allow the children of Israel to enter in. That is the purpose. That's what the false prophet exists for, according to the second chapter of Second Peter. They're meant to be taken and destroyed, but if they're not, what happens is the Pharisee and or the false prophet, through his malarkey, is able to make the way of truth evil spoken of. Historically, Christians did not have a problem understanding that Jesus Christ came for one race of people and one race alone, because it's forever transcribed in the Word of God, even your King James. But here in this latter era, while the enemy is attempting to defile Christianity from within, we see suddenly multiculturalism. Well, anybody, any race, any type of person, any sexual orientation, any gender, whatever, can go ahead and come into Christianity. But why is that not the same for everything else? Apparently, once in a while, you may see some dumb white goyim go out and uh, attempt to be a Buddhist or something like that. But for the most part, what we see is Christianity, modern Christianity, being inundated with unbelieving horrors. Oh, they can play church. They can come along and they can sing a great song. They can throw 20 bucks in the copper at the end of the service. They can pat Billy Graham on his back and say, you know what? Good job. Thanks for lying to me. But it doesn't make them any more Christian than the devil himself. Why? Because they are deniers. A simple and straightforward way of denying Jesus Christ is denying his word. Consider the lunacy behind the man who comes along and says he has a private interpretation of Jesus Christ that is not found in the scripture when all we truly know of Jesus Christ is found within those two covers. And that's the way Jesus Christ has it. That's the, why he, that's the very reason why he's considered the living word. Next verse, that is, 103 in the sayings of the Gospel of Thomas. Jesus said, Blessed is one who knows where or when bandits are going to attack, so that he can prepare, assemble his forces, and arm himself before the bandits enter. And so, just like it was at the times of Jesus Christ, so it is now in this end time. For we walk along, and it's extremely dangerous. If you're a true Christian... If we're a multiculturalist, if we're a liberal, well, we'll have very little problems in life. But if you truly believe in this word of God, you will be seen by the governments of man and many members of your family as an outcast, as a racist, as a fanatic. And they'll come along and they'll say, how can you believe in that word of God? And I ask them, how can you believe in that crap you see on the television every single night, filling your head day in and day out with lies? That's all it is, dear friends. 
Ask one of these people who sit watching television every night. Ask them if they believe the television, and their answer is, they'll say, well, I don't believe everything I see on television. The correct answer, dear friends, is you should not believe anything you see on television. Why? Because television's not real. It's recorded. It's not even Memorex. It doesn't exist. What does exist, however, is the kingdom of heaven. And the natural man is unable to see that. Why? Well, we've already studied it, because they're not seeking. And if those natural men are seeking, what they are seeking is the things of the world, and that will avail them nothing. Straight, straight forward teaching, and a teaching on self-defense. As I pointed out before, we must arm ourselves. This is one of the things that we were instructed to do by Jesus Christ when he says you must have a sword. So the detractor will come along and say, well, that just means the word of God. No, friends, it means both. Do you honestly think that as Jesus Christ walked the face of this earth, living in the desert, being fed by the multitudes, that he wasn't armed? That his disciples were not armed? Well, Scripture straightforwardly says he was. Because when they came to get him in the Garden of Gethsemane, Peter drew his sword and cut the ear off of one of those detractors. So they were armed, and they followed what Jesus Christ said. But pay attention, because the way of the Judaizer is to come along and take your weapons. Take your ability to sustain yourself. And be that as it may, they can take your swords, they can take your guns, but they cannot take you away or separate you from the love of God. If God be for us, who cares who's against us? They simply cannot stand. So the Pharisees do not let you eat, and blessed is the one who prepares, who knows that he can be robbed, and who pays attention to the bandits. So the Judeo-Christian would come along and he'd say, well, you know what, thank God we live in America today where there's no crime, because they're oblivious to this fact. Dear friends, there's more crime in America than there was in Jerusalem at the time Jesus Christ lived. But he has to come along and tell you to be prepared of bandits, because by default the natural man is oblivious. The fool walks on and he's consumed. This is what Solomon says in Proverbs. So if we don't take stock and reevaluate ourselves time and time again, just like it says in the Gospel of Thomas, we will become meat for the beast of the field. We will become, in essence, in the eyes of Almighty God, a corpse, nothing but a dead vessel having no spirit. So, prepare, dear friends, and take measures. Do not allow the world to get the better of you, because you, through Yahweh God, have more power than they. Verse 104, they, the disciples, said to Jesus, come, let's pray today, let's fast. Jesus responded, what sin have I committed? How have I been overcome? Rather, when the groom leaves the bridal suite, then they should fast and pray. Why? Because it's a time of mourning. Understand that at that marriage supper of the Lamb, when we are reunited with Yahshua Messiah as one, there's no need for the Bible anymore. There's no need for fasting anymore. There's no need for sacrifice. In fact, there's no need for any of these things because Yahweh God will sustain us day and night and give us the light we need. So, if you want to get into these traditions over and over and over, Jesus isn't saying don't follow the law. Jesus is teaching you allegorically. Pay close attention. Sin have I committed, he asked, that I need to go and fast and pray for forgiveness for. He had committed none. 
But more specifically, he says, when the groom leaves the bridal suite, then they should fast and pray. That was the whole teaching. That's what he said before. I, Jesus Christ, stand before you, will answer any question you give me. Yet now that I'm able to answer you freely, you simply will not ask. And on the tail end of that, the disciples were also wrapped up in many traditions, so much so that Jesus Christ didn't say it's not good to fast or pray. More specifically, he says it's good to fast and pray when the bridegroom is removed from you. They were walking with Jesus Christ, who was the bridegroom. In essence, all they needed to achieve was unity. This is the entire story of the Bible, and the reason why the Gospel of Thomas ends on the note that it does is because we are supposed to be one with God. So just as we look to Yahweh God as our Father, yet are one with Him in one body of Jesus Christ, so it is that Jesus Christ is with the Father, and the natural man comes along and gets confused. How can you be both God and the Son of God? Well, we're both the Son of God, and eventually will become a part of God. It's simply no confusion in that teaching, dear friends. But the way of the false prophet, the way of the Pharisee, the way of the scripture lawyer is to come along and take the simple and make it more complex, to get you off of course, to get your eyes off of that prize. So don't pray and fast when Jesus Christ is with you. Talk to him face to face. There's no need for a fast. But pray and fast for a godless society that we live in that rejects the bridegroom and the bride. 105. Jesus said, One who knows his father and his mother will be called the son of a whore. Let me say that again one more time for you, because this ties perfectly into the Talmud. Jesus said, one who knows his father and his mother will be called the son of a whore. Already we've established in this Gospel of Thomas that Jesus Christ said, anybody who does the will of my father, that is Yahweh God, will be considered my mother, brother, etc. Already in this Gospel of Thomas, Jesus Christ has laid down for us that we're to love less our physical parents and brothers and so forth, and love God with all our heart, mind, and being. Yet here it says, Jesus Christ, one who knows his father and his mother, will be called the son of a whore. Guess what? Jesus Christ knew them both. Did he not? That's been proven from the series itself. And in the Talmud, today, we can read that Jesus Christ was a bastard born of adultery. More specifically, I might point out, in Judaism as a whole, and in the Talmud, the most viciously attacked more than Christ, who they mostly consider Balaam, is Mary. Oh, they love coming along and saying Mary was a whore. They love putting forth these damnable hypotheses saying Mary screwed a Roman centurion, or she was raped by the Sanhedrin, or all of these things. And Jesus Christ here, before even our Bible, not our Bible Gospels were written or compiled, is already telling you this is what they're going to say. He who knows his mother and his father truly will be called the son of a whore. It's exactly what they call Jesus Christ today. And more specifically, you don't have to be Jewish to have this mindset, dear friends, because many out there in the world love coming along and making a mockery of Jesus Christ. Consider South Park. Consider half the abominations coming out of Bollywood as we speak. Consider Star Trek, anyway. And then when you're done considering Star Trek... Consider Rabbi Samuelson, who goes along talking about Pastor Jay Faber, calling him Sci-Fi Faber, and then groveling at the feet of George T.K., talking about, I love Star Trek. 
who's the real sci-fi here? So, this particular rabbi, who I just mentioned, loves going out and saying, well, Pastor Visser's a whore, he's a mamzer. That's technically what that means, is a child of mixing, meaning my mother would be a whore. Ironic, isn't it? Maybe the reason Rabbi Samuelson spends so much time attacking yours truly is because I do know my father, and I do know my mother, and it sure as hell isn't a visser. Next verse. 106. Jesus said, When you make the two into one, you will be called sons of men. When you say, Move, mountain, it will move. And so this is metaphor, this is symbology, and this is how Jesus Christ taught. We know, according to our own Bible, that Jesus Christ taught in parables, both Old and New Testament, attest to the fact that the reason he taught in parables was so that the whole world wouldn't understand. It would be one thing for him to come along and say, accept Yahweh God and his law. Entirely different to come along and say, seek, period. One is him telling you what to do. One is you doing the work. Understand, Yahweh, God does not want robots. If he wanted robots, he would have hardwired within his own creation from day one the ability for us to love him and only love him. But that's not what he did, did he? Rather, he put our progenitors, the original parents, Adam and Eve, into paradise, that is Eden, and he gave them a choice. There were two trees, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, tree of life. And naturally, as the rest of scripture says, man goes after the darkness. Man goes after the lie. And what should be pointed out from the Genesis account is the fact that even though Adam, Adam man, proverbially, us as a race, were given the entire world, we were not content with all of that except for the one forbidden thing we're not allowed to have. This is why Satan fell. This is why most Christians fall time and time again. They don't seem to realize that man can never understand the mindset nor the will of Yahweh God. And in doing so, they will either drive themselves crazy or make themselves a hypocrite, a byword, and a false prophet by attempting to put a date on the end of the world, by attempting to say God's will is this when it truly isn't. Don't make that mistake. Unity is the key. Jesus says when you make the two into one, you will be called the sons of men. Two into one, what? Unity. And just as this ends by Jesus Christ saying, lest a female become as male, so the teaching exists. Just like Paul says in his latter epistles, the head of every woman is the man, the head of every man is Yahweh God. There is a hierarchy. Why? Because together they make one. A married couple simply is not judged separately in judgment. Rather, they are judged as one. And the unmarried widow and or man is married to God. Therefore, the unity exists. But that's what he's saying here. If we're able to have true unity, true fellowship, the hierarchy of the Christian family, the church, and the community, all of those things in the proper balance, then we'd be able to say, move mountain, and it'll move. But the Judeo-Christian comes along and says, well, that can't be. I can say, move a mountain, move a mountain, I believe it, I have true faith, but it doesn't seem to move. That's not what he's saying. What he's saying is we'd have the ability to change this world if we simply seek his faith, follow his morality, and do exactly what he says. 
next verse. That is verse 107. Jesus said, The kingdom is like a shepherd with 100 sheep. One of those sheep, the largest, wandered off. He left the 99 others behind and went looking for the other one until he found it. Having exhausted himself, he said to the sheep, I love you more than the other 99. And so we... So we're familiar with this story, dear friends, because we also studied this in the regular King James Bible. But what should be pointed out about the Gospel of Thomas is this, that the sheep that wandered off was not the lowliest. lowliest. It was not the smallest. It was not an immature sheep. Rather, here in the narrative of the Gospel of Thomas, the fattest, best sheep wandered off. And because that one sheep, who just so happened to be fatted, and proper, and whole, wandered off, then Jesus Christ, who is our shepherd, forsook the other 99 to go after that one. Why? Well, obviously he was fattened up on his works. Obviously he was fattened up through familiarization with God. And because he did as such, Jesus Christ would forsake the other 99. Why? Because he's a pearl of great price. The Judeo-Christian loves coming along and telling you that all sin is equal in the eyes of God, which it simply is not, dear friends. If all sin was equal in the eyes of God, then God would not differentiate sins unto death from simple little sins that could be atoned with a sacrifice. More specifically, to come along and say that a rapist is the same as a liar is not only insulting to man, but it's insulting to God as well. Remember this, dear friends. Jesus Christ will love that one fattened, acceptable sheep more than the other 99. Why? Because he chooses to. Bottom line, do you want to be chosen of Yahweh God, or do you just want to be part of the masses? I can guarantee you the other 99 sheep that were left behind most likely were part of the masses. Even though they knew their shepherd's voice, even though, even though the voice of a shepherd of a stranger they wouldn't follow, as Jesus Christ says, even though they were good people, and even though they were within the body of Christ, Jesus will forsake all of those to go after one who is lost. So if we're lost in the ways of the world, dear friends, listen to me now. If we're lost, if you're lost, if you're in the thralls of sin or the thralls of tradition, if you're in a universal church or any of those things, I'm telling you right now, dear friends, the only way out is through Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone. You can go to a church. You can go to a food bank. You can go and do whatever you want. But none of those things will avail you as much as dropping to your knees, putting your face in the dirt, and praying to Yahweh God for forgiveness and for guidance. This is what the natural man never does because it's foolishness to him. He says in his heart, first and foremost, there is no God. And in saying that, he becomes tenfold more a fool. Why? Because to say there is no God is to put yourself above the position of God. Let me ask you, listener, can you miracle a tree into existence? Can you, through thought, through word, do any of the things Yahweh God did? More specifically, drawing away from Yahweh God, let's focus on Jesus Christ. Are you able to give eyesight to the blind? Are you able to cast out demons? Are you able to do all of those things? The answer is yes. In fact, you'll be able to do those things, even more greater works than Jesus Christ did. The natural man sits around and says, Jesus didn't do it, while the true Christian is able to do it in a metaphorical, meaning spiritual sense. We 
may not be able to walk up to someone who was born blind, put our hand on him like Jesus Christ did, and open his eyes so he can see the sky again. But what we can do is shine light through the Word of God so that they're able to see. So that they're able to see and or hear. Jesus Christ doesn't say you must have eyes to see. Jesus Christ says, if you have eyes to see. So you could be spiritually blinded and you can be physically blinded. And I assure you, dear friends, it is worse to be spiritually blinded, to be spiritually maimed or crippled, than physically maimed or crippled. Next verse. That is 108 in the Gospel of Thomas. Jesus said, He who drinks from my mouth will become like I am. And I will become he. And the hidden things will be revealed to him. Let's read this a different way. Jesus said, He who drinks from my mouth will become like the great I am, that is, Yahshua, Messiah, or Yahweh, in the Spirit. And I will become he. And the hidden things will be revealed unto him. Now, how do we drink from Jesus' mouth? The answer is very, very simple. Many of you, your mind may be racing to the woman at the well where he says, well, uh, I can give you the waters of life that you can drink from and never thirst from again. But the quickest, most surefire way to drink from Jesus' mouth is to stay in the Word of God. Where are Jesus' words written? In the Bible. And therefore, if we stay within that, that's the only way that us in this year, 2012, will be able to drink from his mouth. And in doing so, dear friends, we should point out that 108 says, if we drink from his mouth, if we study his word and adapt it to our life, we will become like him, God. I am. And not only that, he will become as he. Once again, we see the exact same theme, unity. That's what we're supposed to be striving for, not division, not schisms within the church, not debates over all of this lunacy. Unity. If it be possible, get along peaceably with all men. If it be possible. Many of these terrors will come along and make it absolutely impossible for you to love them. Many of them will come along and they'll sit and they'll cross a line. But like I said on the News Guy show last Friday, dear friends, I don't hate Rabbi Samuelson. In fact, I pity him. And uh, on that topic, I might go ahead and interject right here. Dear friends, if you happen to be on the Internet Friday night, Rabbi Samuelson and I will be debating once again on the News Guy show on the uh, Talk Show Radio Network. And I must say, actually, that that's the way I prefer it, in a nice, controlled environment with lots of listeners. Because when Rabbi Samuelson comes to my show, what he usually will do is scroll, put a bunch of lunacy up there, links to his own forum because he's desperate. But he's a detractor. The time spent dealing with Martin Lindsay can take you from teaching the Word of God. Point in case, next verse, I'll just step away from that whole topic. 109. Jesus said, The kingdom is like a man with a treasure of which he is unaware, hidden in his field. He died and left the field to his son. His son knew nothing about it, and, having received the field, sold it. The new owner came, and while plowing, found the treasure. He began to lend money at interest to anybody he wished. Interest, dear friends, according to the law of God, is forbidden. We covered it last night, that if we're to loan, we're to gift. Meaning, we're not to give and expect interest in return. If anything, we're to give to those we don't expect to give back. Meaning to feed the hungry, to clothe the poor, to do all of those things that Jesus Christ said, those righteous works. But notice, 
as the kingdom of heaven is all around you and within you, so also can it be beneath you and missed. It can be right before your very eyes, and it is, because that's what Jesus Christ says. But a natural man, not being in tune with Jesus Christ, not drinking the words from his mouth, a.k.a., is like that person. He's like the type of person who could sit there and say, well, you know what? This land is more important than the treasure buried beneath it. He is the same type of person who will come along. Okay. He is the type of person who will come along and say that land is more valuable. He's also the same type of person that would render unto Caesar God's gold because that's his priority. Also notice that that kingdom of heaven was taken away from its previous owners, meaning that that man who came, that new owner, who found that treasure, he began to lend his money at interest. Now it's going to cost you more. So, dear kinsfolk, we are at the one-hour mark. If you have any questions or inquiries, you're free to go ahead and call in in upwards for the next half hour or so. If nobody chooses to call in, I'm going to go ahead and continue out this, and that would be fine, too, because it will be a seven-part series. But if you do have any questions, feel free to go ahead and call in at this time. Next verse. 110. Jesus said, Whoever has found the world and become rich should renounce the world. So Jesus isn't coming along saying you should be of the world, you should go the way of the world. Rather, you should find the true world, as we've already covered. Consider the sayings 80 and 81. They sound almost identical. They say this. Jesus said, whoever has come to know the world has found the body. Whoever has found the body, the world is not worthy of him. Also, 81. Jesus, whoever has become rich should rule. Whoever has power should renounce it. And so it is no different here in 110. Jesus says, whosoever found the world and become rich should renounce the world. Why? Because in renouncing the world and the world's ways, can we truly become rich? Oh, perhaps not monetarily. You're not going to come along, renounce the world, and, and suddenly be the CEO of Nike making, you know, triple digits. doesn't work that way. But you will be rich in the eyes of Yahweh God. Consider the book of Revelation, where he says, Woe unto this church, I know you are poor, but thou art rich. To be poor in the eyes of the world means that nine times out of ten you are rich in the eyes of God. And you would much, you'd be much better off being rich in the eyes of God and renouncing all the things of the world. 111, saying one, one, one. Jesus said, the earth and the sky will roll up right in front of you. Anyone living from the living will not die. Doesn't Jesus say that the world is not worthy of one who finds himself? And so both of these statements center around this topic, that the kingdom of God is here. It is all around you. It is within you. It is merely a matter of perception. This is the reason why the Bible says the spiritual man can see Yahweh God in all things, and the foolish man can't see Yahweh God in anything. The reason for that is because the spiritual man has his eyes fixed on the prize. He knows Yahweh God is in control, and more important than just knowing that Yahweh God is in control, he has felt Yahweh's guidance. He knows Yahweh God put him in the proper path, and as such is able to serve him better. The world is not worthy 
of one who finds himself. Why? Next verse, 112. Jesus said, woe to the flesh dependent on the soul. Woe to the soul dependent on the flesh. And so, as we covered yesterday, Jesus spoke very similarly, saying, woe unto he who must kill and who must eat, kill to eat and kill animals in order to sustain himself. Meat, physical meat will sustain our body. It will avail us life here on earth. But meat, that is spiritual meat, will feed us for an eternity, if you will. Meaning that the word of God is more important than physical food, raiment, homes, careers, and all of those things. These are so simple. But in reality, the natural man can't grasp that. Go into Creflo Dollars Church. Go into any 501c3 tax-exempt bail pimp pulpit out there and ask them, Hey, uh, you know, what's the difference between the spirit and the flesh? Nine times out of ten, they can't answer you because they dwell within the flesh. They'll say, oh, the spirit is Yahweh, God, but they never seemingly understand that they are to be wrapped up within that spirit. And so it follows that the living come from the living. We do not want to be a body depending on a body. So woe to the flesh, that is you and I right now while we live, dependent on the soul, but woe unto the soul that depends on the flesh. In essence, cutting through it all, Jesus Christ is straightforwardly making a simple charge. What he's teaching is, the soul is soul, the flesh is flesh. The soul may dwell within the flesh, but they are separate entities. You can dwell within one. You can be a spiritual man, or you can be the natural man. The natural man dwells within his flesh, woe unto him, because he's dependent upon the soul. The soul, in essence, that he's not able to have. But the soul that depends on the flesh is even worse. Because he's not technically spirit at all. Next verse. That is 113 in the sayings of the Gospel of Thomas. They asked him, the disciples, when is the kingdom coming? He replied, it is not coming in an easily observable manner. People will not be saying, look, it's over here or look, it's over there. Rather, the kingdom of the Father is already spread out on the earth, and the people are not aware of it. Let me read that one more time. The kingdom of the Father is already spread out on the earth, and people are not aware of it. That, my friends, is the whole theme of the Gospel of Thomas. That, my friends, is the reason why he could say in our Bible, the kingdom of heaven is all around you and within you. That is the reason why he says, wherever two or more gather in my name, there I am in the midst of them. And that is also why he says, split a piece of wood and lift a rock, I am there. Wouldn't you rather be out in the desert listening to Jesus Christ or John the Baptist than in Jerusalem, in the synagogue, listening to the Pharisees? Well, there is no new thing under the sun. Wouldn't you rather be listening to the word taught line by line and verse by verse than going to one of these good ver- these feel-good churches, these one-verse Charlies that are going to come along and read you one verse and spout a bunch of hot air for an hour? They asked him, his own disciples, they didn't recognize it. Even them, like many of us down here, Adamite men, women, and children, said, when is this kingdom coming. Hey, maybe we'll align it with the Mayan calendar. Hey, maybe it'll be uh, 666. Maybe it'll be 2000. Remember that one? The whole Y2K crisis. These things come and go. Why? Because the Bible straightforwardly teaches a very simple concept. 
world without end. Amen. There is no end of the world. The entire Bible testifies of that. There may be an end of this age and an ushering in of the third earth age, but this world, dear friends, will not end. And so the lunacy behind it is the disciples coming to Jesus Christ saying, when's the kingdom coming? And Jesus has to reply to them what I've taught you in this entire seven-part series, what he taught throughout almost the whole of Scripture. It's not over there. It's not over here. If someone comes along and says the world is going to end according to the Mayan calendar, you should already know the false prophets. Why? Because that's just the way it is. Christ says no man knows the hour nor the moment. We cannot know that. But what you can know is this, that it's already here. Do you accept that? Because if you realize it's already here, you're not going to be looking for a sign. If you realize the kingdom of heaven is already around you and already within you, then you're not going to be looking for a date. You're going to recognize it for what it really is. There, all along. All you've got to do is see it in the flesh and step into it in the spirit. It's that simple. And so when we read in our Old Testament that when that silver cord parts, the Spirit returns instantly to the Father who gave it, this isn't a rapture process. This isn't we die and suddenly float off into outer space. This is us stepping out of mortality and putting on immortality. It aligns perfectly with the rest of Scripture, dear friends. I've taught the Gospel of Mary. I've taught the Book of Enoch. I've taught the Proto-Evangelion. And even though there are small differences in perception in these books, there are no contradictions. They align perfectly. So don't let man come along. More specifically, don't let the Council of Nicaea, the Catholics, the Popes, come along and tell you, you know what, don't read the Gospel of Thomas. Don't read the Gospel of Mary. That biggest irony, I think, that exists down here is Protestants who believe that they actually descended from Catholicism, that the Word of God, the Bible, was given to us by the Catholics as opposed to taken from us. All the while, the Protestants sit and read 66 books in their Bible, and the Papists got the Apocrypha. Don't let them take that from you, dear friends. There's a reason for it, and the reason is very, very simple. Perhaps it's even this reason. Maybe they don't want you to know the kingdom of heaven is around you. Because in knowing that, you should know that they themselves are accountable. Judaism in itself, but more specifically, Judeo-Christianity, teaches that Yahweh God has very little to do with his creation. Oh, indeed. They may even say, I have a form of godliness. They may be able to come along and say, I believe in the word of God, but the biggest irony of all is that they don't believe God has every hair on your head numbered. They don't believe that he knows every piece of sand on the ocean. Oh, they can believe God created the world, but somehow or another, God being able to see everything, every one of his docs at all times, is foreign to them. They can't grasp it. So what they do is they come along and they justify it. And it was no different when Jesus Christ walked. They came along and said, when's the kingdom coming? Jesus says, you're in it. Don't make that mistake. Don't think you're going to float off into heaven, because that's what they want you to think. Take your eyes off the prize. Suddenly you're looking off into outer space instead of looking in the community right here where there's starving white families, where there's people who need jobs, where there's homeless people who need to be fed, where there's good deeds that can be done over and over and over. The flippant Christian sits at home in his easy chair every night watching TV saying it doesn't matter. God's going to rapture me away anyway. And in essence, guess what? Their God will rapture them away. 
according to the parable of the tares and the wheat, which appears right here in the Gospel of Thomas, the tares are taken first, and they're burned, they're destroyed. That's what rapture is. So while these Judeos sit around waiting for Jesus Christ, wanting to be the first one taken, the true Zadok, the true saints are down here fighting, saying, screw this Antichrist, this isn't he, this is a son of perdition. Consider this aspect. The devil could come back right now. And he could teach diametrically opposed to what Christianity has always taught. And the world would accept him as Jesus. As Antichrist. As that man of sin, that son of perdition, the king of all Antichrist, if you will. All he's got to do is come and say, I come to spread love. Smoke some drugs. Race mix. You can be gay. It's okay. And this modern, politically correct society would say, that's God as opposed to the God who condemns those practices. Woe unto them that call good evil and evil good. And that, my friends, is the age that we live in today. Don't make that mistake. Verse 114. Simon Peter said to them, Mary should leave us, because women are not worthy of the life. Jesus responded, Look, I'll lead her in order to make her male, so that she can become a living spirit, as you males are. For each woman who makes herself male will enter the kingdom of God. And dear friends, that is the very last verse in the Gospel of Thomas. And I'm going to point out to you right now that because it is the very last verse in the Bible, it was added by a scribe. And there's no easier place to add your comment than at the end of a text. But even though that may be, even though they come along and they say, well, that was added, and it could well be, I'm going to go ahead and I'm going to tell you the meaning of this. Simon Peter said to them, Mary should leave us because women are not worthy of the life that is eternal life. Is that what Jesus Christ taught? Is that found in the whole of our scripture? Did Jesus Christ differentiate between them? No, rather he said that when we are with God in the kingdom, we are as the angels. Angels have no sex, if you will. Why? Because angels are perfectly in and of themselves one, unified. Meaning that if anything, an angel would be closest to both than one or the other. And so Jesus Christ says here, I'll make her a male so she can become a living spirit as you males are. For each woman who makes herself male will enter the kingdom of heaven. What? Each woman who makes herself male will enter into the kingdom of heaven. How can a woman make herself male? According to our Bible, there are two ways. One is to get married, meaning that if we marry a Christian man, then that Christian man becomes that woman's head. She becomes the body and so forth. And as one, as it was in the beginning in the way God created Adam and Eve to be one, then that woman becomes male, and in essence, the man becomes the head. Or, if she's not to get married, then she is to be remain a widow and or marry Yahweh, God. If they're married to God, then guess what? They're one with God. If they're married to man, guess what? They're one with man. But if that man truly has his head fixed on the prize, if his head truly is Jesus Christ, not tradition, not all this lunacy that exists out there, then that woman will, in essence, become as a male and make it in. So, irregardless of whether this was truly added at a later date, or it truly is the mindset of Jesus Christ, which I doubt, the same rule applies. The whole teaching of the Gospel of Thomas 
is unification, not division. As seeking and finding and looking within ourselves and reevaluating ourselves to know what it is we're looking for. What you look for, what you seek in life is what defines you. For example, if I uh, seek out lots of motorcycles, then I'm a motorcycle enthusiast. If I seek out lots of movies, then I'm a movie buff. It's just that simple. So anything that we spend more time with than Yahweh God can become a snare, a stumbling block, and an idol to us. So also we must remain fixed on these very simple teachings. We must put Jesus Christ and his word as the frontlet of our eyes. And we must do only what he requires of us. So, dear friends, we have completed the Gospel of Thomas, and we have about ten more minutes to go, so I'm going to give you a few updates as to the current status of Covenant People's Ministry and what we are planning on doing for the next month. Uh, as you may have noticed, we have published to our forum that we will be broadcasting nightly. That nightly is pretty loose, and the reason for that is this. We will be broadcasting every Thursday at 9.15, and we will be broadcasting every Sunday at 9.15. Anytime Rabbi Samuelson goes on, then yours truly will be out there to counteract his nonsense with some Bible teaching. But at the same time, like always, we will not step on the foot or the feet of William Fink, Eli James, Pastor Dan Johns, or James Wickstrom. So in essence, what I'm saying is, yours truly will be broadcasting from the TalkShoe Radio Network practically every single night that those gentlemen are not. Over the last decade, dear friends, yours truly has always made an effort of releasing every single audio file on Sunday at 10 p.m. or on Wednesday at 7 p.m. However, that has simply changed as of late. The reason for that is because there's maniacal rabbis out there who love scrolling, who love attacking, and love stirring up all sorts of BS. Rabbi Samuelson, a.k.a. Now, that in a controlled environment is pretty good. In fact, the last show we did pretty much pulled out his Nimbuster fan base, pretty much knocked him down. But you know what? I don't want to take credit for running Rabbi Samuelson out, because if anything, I take credit for bringing him in. But I will say this. If anything ran Rabbi Samuelson out of the movement, or if anything will, it will be the fact that he's sickly like a homosexual faggot, dropped to his knees and groveled at the feet of George TK, a.k.a. Captain Sulu from Star Trek. That should show you the morality of somebody who spends all their time attacking Christian pastors, and at the very first glimpse of what they thought was TK, friend, not Takai. Guy was so silly he didn't even know how to pronounce his own name. And also, I might add, George TK is 72 years old, not in his late 70s. Rabbi Lenz, it's so silly, he simply does not understand that. But when you have to resort to gimmickry, you're already over. And so, in essence, I'm going to give Christian identity a choice. Pete Peters has died within the last year, dear friends, almost two years ago, I believe. And since Pete Peters left... There's been very few people to fill the airwaves. Pete Peters used to broadcast four times a night, and that was, or four times a week. And that was the reason on the tail end of last night's broadcast, I told you, that if you could bring Pete Peters back right now and you could ask him one question, what would he do different? He would most likely respond, I would preach more. Pete Peters preached more than anybody else. Are you giving all you have? Well, 
yours truly intends to step to that plate. And if it requires four broadcasts every night, five broadcasts, or seven even, that's exactly what we're going to be doing. So, even though the Gospel of Thomas is done, I'm pretty certain we will be back tomorrow if nothing else is scheduled by a real genuine CI pastor out there. I should be back tomorrow, same exact time, 9.15, with a brand new study. Of course, we will take your calls if you have questions. You can always post your comments into the uh, TalkShoe chat server, or you can swing by our forum, accessible on the World Wide Web at CovenantPeoplesMinistry.com, and show your support. Another interesting thing, and it has been recently announced, is this. Covenant People's Ministry is slowly making the transition to video. And indeed, we have uploaded several videos to YouTube. But none of these videos are in the traditional sense of video. Most of them are just slideshows that make it easier for you to uh, follow along with the text. Just like this Gospel of Thomas, you should read along in the Gospel of Thomas, and the text is up on the Covenant People's Wiki and in our forum, so you can do as such. This is the reason we take them, upload them within an hour or two, put them up on YouTube so people can listen to them. Like I said, we have no idea how Yahweh God works. We don't know how he's going to bring people into the fold. But, but things like TalkShoe, YouTube as archive.org and so forth, as long as they are seemingly being pretty kosher about it, then we should have very little problems. But at the same time now, <laughs> someone recently uploaded all the Mike Blevins show, the Von Bluven show, someone put all those up on archive and uh, they took them down. So, you know, I don't know if the time is short. I don't know if, uh, you know, things are changing drastically, and I will say this. Things have changed, at least from my perception as a pastor. Things have changed more in the last four years since Obama became president around March of 08 than they had in the 40 years previous. Obama promised change, did he not? And now you have your change. Now you have white people being meat for the beast of the field, if not anything else. Now you have KFC and all these other places pushing affirmative action out because affirmative action would only help a white person at this stage. Now you have your world corrupted. This is what happens when you get this is exactly what I promised. And, dear friends, if you're listening, please swing by the Covenant People's website and download Abomination of Desolation. I preached this sermon when him and Hillary were both still running for president, before McCain got outed, before any of those things, and everything I told you would come to pass, and that did. Am I tooting my own horn? No, I'm not. I'm not saying I'm a prophet in any way. All I'm saying is if we're familiar enough with the Word of God, if we're familiar enough with the biblical numerics and so forth, if we're familiar with these allegories and so forth, then you, as a wise man, should be able to see what's on the horizon. So when in 08 I told you you'd be paying 3 to $4 a gallon, here we are. And when I told you that Yahweh God would curse us and, and remove his face from us, and we would eventually become meat, that's where we live now. So we live in an era where we're technically fair game, and the blacks can attack us day in, day out. A hundred rapes a day in America, black against white, and it's not a hate crime. But if I go out and say, go to hell, faggot, one time, dear friends, to some queer to his face, they could take yours truly, lock me up for life for a hate crime. But you know what? I don't care. That's the beauty of it all. I would rather stand for God than sit and side with the political correct agenda that's out there. 
Dear friends, there's nothing more embarrassing than someone who grovels at the feet of somebody for some crumbs. And nothing more embarrassing, perhaps even more humiliating, than groveling at the feet of your enemy to be fed. So as the Gospel of Thomas tells you, a pearl of great price, and teaches about woe unto them that store up treasure, not only in heaven, but treasure alone that moth nor dust doth corrupt, we must understand that in that category also encompasses gold, silver, pearls, soil, and any of those other things that cannot be tainted and or destructed. So am I teaching you you should stockpile gold and so forth? I'm telling you to survive. Be smart. Be wise as serpents. If you must and you should, stockpile food. You should stockpile ammunition if you have it, just because we do not know what's on the horizon. But I assure you, dear friends, I don't expect this world to get much better. In fact, I will go on record right now as saying based on what I've seen in the last 15 some odd years in the ministerial office, is this. If it's going to get hotter, then I could almost assure you it will be March of 2013, and especially if Obama becomes president or continues to be president. The reason I say that, dear friends, is because I preached for 10 years a decade, from 98 to 2008, before I even got visited by the feds. And within three days of Obama swearing in and becoming the president, I got a visit from the feds. And since then, in the last four years, I've gotten two additional visits. Is that coincidence, dear friends? Or is that just a sign of what's on the horizon? It's a sign of what's on the horizon. So you should do everything you can do to prepare yourself for the coming woes. So, also, dear friends, I should be pointed out that Covenant People's Ministry has had uh, several attacks. In fact, tonight is a different broadcast. We're broadcasting from an entirely different server. I'm on my cell phone, and I'm using my wife's laptop in order to come through. Because a week ago, my forums got attacked by what was known as a mass website injection exploit, number two. Some bastard came through my WordPress through an unupdated plugin and managed to hack through the whole server. What we ended up having to do was delete all the files and re-upload them. Now, our users didn't notice that, but unfortunately, I got hacked. My mainframe com computer got hacked through my own site, of all irony. So needless to say, we're going to format that tonight, and we'll be back up rolling tomorrow. But what I'm trying to point out is the more that I preach, the more that you do, the more you will be attacked from Tel Aviv or from wherever else these people send their little bots and their little exploits and so forth. So if you happen to deal with any of those exploits or your uh, antivirus software notified you of that, please don't hesitate to contact us if it happens again at covenantpeoplesministry.org. The reason for that is because we want to give you a safe you know, environment, but if there's anybody out there who happens to be trying to do whatever, you know, that's ridiculous. But it is under control and it has been secured. But what I'm saying is the more I preach, the more we get hacked and the more attacks we have to go through, meaning we have to be more secure, we have to go, we have to war up, if you will, and gear up to be able to do this. Okay. So, dear friends, we've got about four more minutes to end this out, and I will end this out. 
As I mentioned, I will definitely be on Thursday at 9.15 to thwart the movement turd by Rabbi Samuelson. But I will most likely probably not be on Friday and Saturday to make way for Bill Fink. If I am on Saturday or Friday, then I will most likely be on in the morning at a time where I won't step on his time or his time slot. Uh, right now, I think the 9.15 hour in the evening is working out really good for our friends overseas and in Europe and Australia and so forth. So if you have any concerns about that or you want to be active on this, dear friends, let me tell you something. A lot different than many of the other broadcasters out there who have their co-hosts with them. Yours truly never truly has. I've been on other shows, I've talked to other people, you know, and I've been part of that. But when it comes down to the Covenant People's Ministry pulpit, it is yours and yours alone, preaching for an hour or an hour and a half, nonstop, with no breath, no break, no stop. I love to do it, but what I would also really truly love out there, listener, pay attention, is a CI co-host. Someone who's not an idiot like Martin Lindsay, but somebody who's actually somewhat knowledgeable in the scripture. Bill DeClue was awesome, but I think he has his own ministry now that he uh, he's more focused on running and so forth. But a co-host would be great for me, especially if we're going to go every single night for the rest of the year, because it would make it easier for me to take a break and have a sip of water. So, with that being established, dear friends, Thank you for your support. Tune in tomorrow night. We should be here with a whole new study, most likely the continuation of the Proto-Evangelion and the Gospel of Mary. That's incomplete, and a lot of people don't know that. We carried the Gospel of the Birth of Mary, and it's complete. We carried the Proto-Evangelion. But there's technically four more books that we should cover. And maybe we'll cover that, or maybe we'll cover some quote-unquote canonized text. I've been wanting to do the Proverbs for a while, so that might be kind of fun to tackle. So if you want to be part of this, go ahead and email me, and we'll see what we can do about working you in. If not, then please tune in later, tune in next time. Swing by the Covenant People's Ministry website. Once again, the address is covenantpeoplesministry.com and or org. And if you don't have an account, go ahead and sign up for one. But until next time, dear friends, this is Pastor Visser from the heart of the Dirty South, wishing you and yours great studies, war for Christ, Amen.